pray for us before we begin. Lord, I pray that you would be among us as we spend this time looking at your word together as we reflect as we reflect on what we have done at what you have done for us. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in this time. That you would shape us more and more into your people. Amen. So last week I introduced one way of categorizing the different models of what we call the atonement and broke them down into three main camps. Talked about there's one called moral example or influence, there's penal substitution, and Christus Victor. And last week I laid out what I think is the biblical case for why moral example or moral influence has a way, has a place in the way that we understand the atonement, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Today, we're going to continue to move through 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to focus in particular on penal substitution, since 521 is one of the key verses for it. So let's begin by reading that passage, starting at 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this was a particularly challenging sermon for me to prepare for a few reasons. And um, I apologize in advance if it's too long or if it's not clear at some points. Um, but first of all, it's a subject that I'm actively studying. And there's a lot that I'm still learning. And second, there's just a great deal to say on the subject of penal substitution and the different ways that it has been understood. So we could easily devote an entire long sermon series just to that. And all I can do today is raise a few points and ask a few questions as a way to get us thinking. Share how I, have, how I am coming to understand it. So I would say that the defining feature of the penal model of the atonement is its focus on sin. The way that Jesus deals with our sin at the cross is at the center of it. The New Testament says clearly and repeatedly that Jesus died for our sins. And the penal model of the atonement seeks to understand what that means and what is involved. So closely tied to Christ dying for our sins is the understanding that sin has a penalty 
a consequence, a cost associated with it. So some weeks back, we talked about four ordered relationships as a paradigm for understanding the way that the world should be. That the biblical vision for humanity in the world is that we be in right relationship to God, to one another, to creation, and to ourselves. However, these four relationships break when, rather than being rightly oriented outwards towards God, towards neighbor, towards creation, we curve in on ourselves. So rather than loving God and neighbor and exercising God's benevolent rule over creation, we put our own interests first. We seek to usurp God's place and become God's for ourselves. And we abuse our neighbors and creation. So rather than the other-centered, self-giving love that we're called to, we embrace self-centered self-assertion. The term flesh, when used negatively, is largely a reference to this curved-in orientation. And it characterizes us all. I'd like to add one dimension to that, specifically that God is our source of life. Life is not something that we possess inherently or independently. It is a gift from God. And it is bound to our relationship with God. Life in the Bible is a broader concept than just biological life, than just a beating heart. It's the flourishing of those four relationships, especially the first, connected to our relationship with God. And because of that, the consequence of a broken relationship with God is death. When we curve in on ourselves and break our relationship with God in the process, we alienate ourselves from the source of life. The wages of sin is death. And so this relational paradigm is one way to look at and to understand sin. But there are also others. One of those is to think of sin, this self-centered way of being, and the acts associated with it, as a kind of pollution or stain. God is free from any hint of selfishness or self-centeredness. In his triune being, God is pure, others-centered love. And the stain of sin disqualifies us from being in the presence of God. Once we've become stained or polluted in this way of looking at it, we have to become cleansed in order to be in God's presence again. God, almost by definition, is the absence of sin. And so, again, almost by definition, sin can't be where God is. If we think in terms of sacred space, the closer sin gets to God, the more threatened it becomes. God's holy presence is so intense that anything profane or stained will be annihilated as it approaches. And we can think of it like the heat of the sun, a sun that burns away or burns up any impurities that approach it. And so again, in this way of looking at it, the consequence of sin is death. 
Another way that we can think about sin is an, as an offense that God judges. When we have violated God or others in some way, we are found guilty. And with this guilt comes an associated punishment. So those are some of the ways of thinking about, of talking about what has gone wrong and what separates us from God and brings death. Death is the penalty for sin. And the first of those, we're curved in on ourselves, which breaks our relationship with God, and it brings death by severing us from the source of life. In the second, we're stained with sin, which separates us from God, since sin cannot exist in God's holy presence, and it results in death when we do come into God's presence. In the third, sin brings guilt, for which death is the punishment. So whichever way we look at it, what becomes clear is that there is a need for a remedy. And that remedy involves restoration or reconciliation. It involves cleansing and forgiveness. So I'm bringing up these different paradigms because I think that they each in their own way help us to understand what's at the heart of the passage in 2 Corinthians 5 today. God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. He made the sinless Jesus to be sin for us so that in him, and that will become very important, we might become the righteousness of God. I think that a good entry point into the discussion of the penalty of sin and the remedy for it is the biblical concept of sacrifice. From the very beginning of the Bible, we see God offer sacrifice as a means to deal with sin. The Hebrew word that we translate as atonement generally refers to that process. Sacrifices are offered as an atonement for sin. They are the process through which God granted his people access to himself. And I found a book that I've been reading by Peter Lightheart to offer a helpful perspective on sacrifices and what's going on there. He says that sacrifice is a gate liturgy. It's a liturgy of return and access designed for worshipers who are in the flesh excluded from full enjoyment of the presence of God. So sacrifices um, don't, they, they don't restore the worshipers directly, you know, physically, bodily to God's presence in the sacrificial system. The people, the worshipers, don't pass by the fiery swords of the cherubim that guard God's presence themselves. Instead, what Lightheart says is that the worshipers send substitutionary animals to represent them in God's presence, to submit to the sword and be translated to divine smoke and fire on their behalf. So we see the concept of substitution arise here. Lightheart argues for how the substitutionary nature of sacrifices fits into the broader biblical narrative. He says the claim that the sacrificial animal is a substitute is hotly controversial but incontrovertible when the Levitical system is placed within its narrative context. In other words, as we read the Levitical practices about sacrifice, that fits into the biblical story somewhere. It has to be understood in the context of that larger story. 
He says the sacrificial system assumes exile from Eden. The worshiper approaches a god who is enthroned behind a screen of cherubic guardians with swords of fire. The worshiper cannot draw near without dying, so he sends an animal ahead on his behalf. The animal is sent to bring the worshiper into God's presence. The animal dies and is turned to smoke, and the worshiper remains quite alive and non-smoky. The only word that fits what happens is substitute. He says it's important to recognize the inclusive character of the substitution, and that's something we'll come back to, so just put a pin in that for now. The animal does what the worshiper cannot do, but does it so that, represented by the animal, the worshiper himself can have his sins covered and can draw near. The animal represents and in some respect includes the worshiper as it ascends to God in smoke. All right, so what Lightheart's saying here is that with burned offerings, the animals are transformed into smoke, which he associates with spirit, and then they ascend into the presence of God on behalf of the worshipers. Another element that factors heavily into the sacrificial system and the way that the New Testament describes Jesus' sacrifice for us is the blood of the sacrifice. It seems that the significance of blood lies in its association with life. In Leviticus 17, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So the blood of the sacrifices ties them to these most basic themes of life and death. And in the same way that there's controversy about whether a sacrifice was a substitute, there's controversy around what blood points to primarily. Some of the commentators see it as a source of life, whereas others see the shed blood as proof of death. And I'm at this point inclined to see it primarily in terms of the former, and there are two reasons for that. First is the requirement that the sacrifices be without spot or blemish. In contrast to those who bring the sacrifices, this spotlessness represents purity and the absence of sin. It represents pure life. Second is the way that the blood consistently acts as a purifying agent in the sacrificial rituals. The blood of the sacrifices purifies the altar and the worshipers. And I think that the symbolism here has to do with pure life washing away the stains of sin the stains of sinful life. The pure life of that sacrificial blood covers and it cleanses the worshipers from the things that disqualify them for being in God's presence. And that's where I see the exchange happening. The pure life of the animal covers and purifies the worshiper. The animal is killed in place of the worshiper in its approach to God in smoke on the worshiper's behalf. And so with all that in mind, we're ready to look at a few of the verses about penal substitution in the New Testament. But there's a point that I want to make before we do so. Um, broadly speaking, penal substitution 
gets, what, what penal substitution gets right is the reality and the seriousness of sin and the necessity of having it dealt with. It recognizes that death is the consequence or the penalty of sin. But there are some versions of penal substitution that go further than this. In different ways, they see God as needing satisfaction or appeasement. For example, some see God's honor as having been violated, and that the only way for God's honor to be restored is by killing the offender. Others see God's wrath as the primary factor. God's wrath at sin must be satisfied through the death of the sinner. God is so angry that he demands blood for his anger to be sated. And I fully admit that I'm still learning here. And what I'm about to say should be heard as my provisional thoughts on something that I continue to wrestle with. But the more that I study this, the less warrant that I see for thinking about penal substitution as the satisfaction of God's wrath, as the appeasement of his wrath. While that can certainly be read into some of the passages on the atonement, I don't think that sense is actually there. We can and should say that God is angry, wrathful at sin. The Bible is clear that God's wrath at sin does and will come. Similarly, we can, we can and should say that Jesus paid the penalty for sin by dying on the cross. We can believe all these things without painting God as someone whose wrath needs to be placated or appeased or satisfied. I think that goes beyond Scripture, and I think it misrepresents God's character, which is why I'm raising it as something that I'm wrestling with. So I'm, I'm glad. Thank you for, for that song this morning, because the, the song in Christ alone is one of the most beautiful songs that we have about what Christ has done on the cross. And there's so much of that song that is profoundly true. But where I think, like some of these models of penal substitutionary atonement, it goes too far, is saying that on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so for now, I raise that, and I'm going to leave it at that. And I encourage you to search the scriptures for yourselves with a critical mind and, and ask yourselves as you read, what are these actually saying before we allow any particular paradigm to determine our conclusions? So, having said that, I want to look at three of the most important passages that talk about penal substitution. I want to compare them to our passage in 2 Corinthians. And then I want to propose what I think is the most helpful way to think about penal substitution that I have come across. So, for these core passages, the first, the most well-known, the most talked about is Romans 3, 21 through 26. It says, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Um, this is an incredibly dense passage, and it has an enormous amount written about it, which was a problem I ran into this week as I was trying to prepare this. So any single verse here could have multiple sermons and books written about it. And all I can say this morning is that it is God who puts Jesus forth as a sacrifice of atonement. What we do not have is an example of the kindly son stepping in to placate the angry father. It's the whole Godhead that's involved in bringing about our reconciliation. And I, and, I, and I understand Jesus' blood here in the same way that we've already discussed it, as his pure life, which cleanses and covers us. In order to cleanse us with that blood, it has to be shed for us. In order to cover us with that life, it has to be given for us. Paul goes on in Romans 5 with one of the other highly... Um, reference passages on this. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Sin is important here. Christ dies for us while we are sinners. His blood is at work here as well, this time justifying us. We also hear explicitly of God's wrath and that we are saved from it through Jesus. But again, what we do not have is the satisfaction or the placation of the wrathful Father by the loving Son. Christ dying for us is described as a demonstration of God's love and not the result of God's wrath. In fact, it's exactly what the passage does not say, that Jesus' blood provides satisfaction for God's wrath. Being saved from God's wrath is distinguished from the effect of Christ's blood. Paul says, since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more 
shall we be saved from God's wrath through him. And so I want to address one more verse before we come back to the significance of that last phrase, through him. And that is Galatians 3. Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This passage is perhaps the most similar to ours in 2 Corinthians Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Sounds a lot like God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What we see here is that Jesus moves into the consequences of sin. What's specifically in view here is the covenant curses described in the book of Deuteronomy. Israel was warned that if they broke covenant these curses would come upon them, most specifically exile. And exile is described and understood in terms of life and death. As Moses talks about these things in Deuteronomy 30, he says, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel broke the covenant. They went into exile. They chose death. And Paul says, Jesus redeemed them from the curse of the law, by becoming the curse for them, by entering into exile and death. But how does that help? So the way that I've come to understand um, the penalty involved in penal substitution is that Christ comes to us in our place of death, in our exile. He enters into death because that is where we are. Jesus' death is about joining us in the punishment that we already experience. We were already dead in our sin. We were already alienated from the Lord who is our life. And when it says Jesus was made sin, that he became the curse for us, I think that is what it means he entered into the death that is the curse, that is the consequence of sin, so that he 
could find us there. He had to die so that we, in death, could be united to him. And so this comes back to the theme of participation that I introduced a few weeks back and then we talked about again last week. Just rolling through a number of these verses. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In Romans 6.4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. In Romans 8.11, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. In Philippians 3, My aim is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, being like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In Ephesians 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, co-made us alive with Christ and co-raised and co-seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 1.24, Paul even says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, which we looked at last week, Christ died for all, and therefore all died. And so to bring this around, I think it is our union with Christ. It's the participation in his death and resurrection that we've been talking about all along here that makes the most sense of penal substitution. Miroslav Volf puts it this way. <clears throat> Christ's death doesn't replace our death. It enacts it, Paul suggested. That's what theologians call inclusive substitution. Because one has died, all have died. As a substitute, he is not a third party. His death is inclusive of all. Earlier we saw that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now we see that we were also in Christ. What happened to him happened to us. When he was condemned, we were condemned. When he died, we died. We were included in his death. So, Jesus didn't die so that we didn't have to. It's not a tale of two cities, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton scenario. It's not that Jesus was swapped out for us, where he dies exclusive of us and completely instead of us. It's rather that the kind of, it's rather the kind of substitution where he dies on behalf of us as our representative. Jesus died because we were already dead. And Jesus died so we could too, as we saw last week. And I think this is what makes the most sense of the whole of Scripture on the matter of penal substitution. 
And I think it means that Jesus' death is not solely vicarious. It's a, particip it's a participatory, inclusive penal substitution. It's about representation, not replacement. Christ suffers and dies for us, but we are with him in Christ in that penalty. And so that said, I think it's the fact that Jesus, Jesus joins us that makes all the difference. He did what we couldn't do on our own. Had it just been us in death, death would have been the end of the story. God made Jesus to be sin for us, to bear the penalty of sin, so that in him, in that participatory way, in him we might become the righteousness of God. So although Jesus died for our sin, the fact that he was righteous meant that he came through death. He was vindicated and raised from the dead as God passed his judgment. And participation in him, in addition to sharing in his death, means that we also share in that righteousness. We share in his vindication. We share in his resurrection. Because he joined us in death, we come through death with him into life. And that life is restored relationship with God. It is reconciliation. Jesus, our sacrifice, brings us back into God's presence. I encourage you to read, like, the whole book of Hebrews. Um, but in Hebrews 10, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. So we're going to take communion now. Let me call the deacons who are going to help with that forward. And we've talked about how baptism is a participation in the life and death of Jesus, and so also is communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 18, Paul says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? It is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? So in this series, we've talked a lot about the other-centered, self-giving, cross-shaped participation in the life and death of Jesus. And we've seen that contrasted with self-centered self-assertion. That's the fleshly alternative to it. And now, we come to the table 
where Christ gives himself to us for nourishment. But if partaking in this meal is a participation in his blood and in his body, what does this meal say of what we are called to? So I'm going to leave you with this following thought, and it's attributed to Brooktolt Brecht in a book called A Certain World, which is by W.A. Auden. They say, as biological organisms, we must all, irrespective of sex, age, intelligence, character, creed, assimilate other lives in order to live. You have to eat. As conscious beings, the same holds true on the intellectual level. All learning is assimilation. As children of God, made in his image, we are required, in turn, voluntarily to surrender ourselves to being assimilated by our neighbors according to their needs. The slogan of hell, eat or be eaten. The slogan of heaven, eat and